0: Well, thank you, Grandpa. <clears throat> I told my wife that if he's any indication of where I'll be in 50 years, then she picked pretty good. So Proverbs 13:12 is a proverb everyone in this room can relate to. It says, "Hope deferred makes the heart We've all felt this down into our bones. Your heart has been set on something, something that promises great joy, and it seems like it's just in reach. It's so close, you can almost taste it. It's right there, and you go to reach for it, and right as you get to it, it vanishes. The house offer falls through. The clean bill of health doesn't last. The job interviews seem to go so well. And then, no call back. It seemed as certain as the sunrise, but then it got dark. And children, you know this feeling too. You've waited all week for the sleepover, and then Friday comes, and your friend gets sick. And no sleepover. Total bummer. Or you've wanted that certain toy, and all the presents are unwrapped. Nothing. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. The Count of Monte Cristo, one of the greatest novels in history, is a masterpiece on this theme. The year is 1815, shortly after the fall of Napoleon's empire, and it begins with Edmund Dantes, a young, competent first mate of a large ship, returning home to Marseille, France after a journey. Now, the captain died on the journey. And so when they reach port, Edmund is informed that because of his integrity and his competence, he is going to be named the captain of the Ferran, even though he's 19. Wonderful news, but there's still more. The love of his life, the beautiful Mercedes, is waiting for him to return so that they can be married. Things are looking pretty great. For Edmund at this point. But clouds quickly roll in. Several men who are driven by envy and malice plot to destroy Edmund. They plan to make it seem as if Edmund is trying to conspire against the government on behalf of Napoleon. Now Edmund and much less Mercedes know anything of this plan and so they set about getting married at once and they make plans and they throw a party they are just about to become man and wife. And during their betrothal feast, in the midst of the celebration, royal guards rush in, arrest Dante, whisk him from his bride-to-be before anyone has any idea what's going on. In short order, Edmund, rather than being on his honeymoon as a newly installed captain, is in chains headed to the dreaded prison the Chateau Yves. Which is on an island thought to be inescapable. Edmund is thrown into a dungeon, The key's thrown away, well, he'll stay for years. And if you want to know how the rest of the story goes, I'll let those 800 pages to you. <laughs> Edmund goes from a wedding to a dungeon, from a captain to a falsely accused prisoner, from sunrise to darkness, from hope to hopelessness, like that. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the heart sickness of hope deferred? If so, you'll know something of the feeling on the road to Emmaus. As two dejected disciples of Jesus Christ made their way out of Jerusalem, feeling the agony of their greatest hope, having been deferred. Please open your Bible to Luke twenty four will be in that for some of the remainder of our time. Earlier, we heard a reading from the beginning of Luke 24, and in our text for today, we'll continue on from there as we walk along the path to Emmaus. Luke 24, verses 13 and 14. Again, this is the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. We know from earlier in the chapter, that very day was the first day of the week. This is the Sunday after Good Friday. Now, Luke has already given us the glorious news of resurrection, but we can't rush there too quickly in this text, or we'll miss Emmaus. We need to sink into where they are. See, these tru- these two travelers thought in this moment that they were disgraced disciples of a dead rabbi. Yes, they had heard a rumor that the tomb was empty, but they could make no sense of that. So rather than staying in Jerusalem, they're making their way out of Jerusalem. And the text says they were talking about the things that had happened. Well, what had happened? Well, the entire world had just come apart. Their master, their rabbi, their friend, their hope had just been brutally and publicly crucified by Roman soldiers. And elevated on a hill to be made a public spectacle of. Right when they thought their future was the brightest. Right when it seemed that Jesus was going to dispose Rome and take his seat on the throne, and restore the glory of Israel, Rome killed him, as Israel cheered it on. These are the things that had happened that they are discussing. And we have reason to believe that one of these travelers had even been perhaps at the foot of this cross. In just a few verses, we'll learn the name of one of the travelers, Cleopas. Now consider John 19, 25, John's account of the crucifixion. He says, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Guess what another potential rendering of Clopas is? Cleopas. So it's very possible that this is the married couple, Cleopas and his wife. At the very least, they knew what had happened. Jesus had been arrested and condemned, scourged and crucified and buried. You don't need to be an eyewitness to know this is terrible beyond comprehension. But it's possible, if not even likely, that one of them had watched it happen. They had seen the teacher bleeding and heaving. They had watched the soldiers mock him. They had heard his mother crying with an agony only a mother could conjure. So it's no wonder they were leaving. They were not just horrified and grief-stricken, but they were associated with him. And Rome is no friend of the disciples of dissenters. This is the scene. Imagine how disorienting and despairing. Imagine the fear as you keep your head down, avoiding eye contact, walking very quickly away. This is them. Proverbs 13:12 says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick." But that's not entirely true. That's only half of the proverb. Do you know the other half? A desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And as these two poor and despondent souls walked the heart-sick road in our text today, they could have never imagined in a billion years what was about to happen. How God meant to undo the sad news that they thought they knew. He was about to show them how the tree of death that Christ died on was to become a tree of life for them. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's pick up in verses 15 through 16. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, this is a strange moment. Jesus comes and is now walking beside them. And yet they were kept from seeing him. Don't miss that. My question is, why? Why did God keep their eyes from seeing him? This is clearly intentional. Jesus must have a reason And I'll venture two guesses. The first one is obvious. It makes for a better story. Children, always remember that our God is an incredible storyteller. Everything you love about any good movie, the action, the suspense, the drama, the plot twists, these are compelling to us because God finds them compelling. And we are made in his image. The only difference is all the stories that God writes are true. So that's one reason, but I think perhaps there's something more going on here. See, these Emmaus travelers were grief-stricken, but they were also stricken by something else, namely, unbelief. Just like the other twelve disciples were often. Now this is not me being uncharitable. In just a few verses, Jesus will call them foolish and slow of heart to believe what should have been obvious to them. So Jesus' main goal was not to quickly just make them feel better with a ta-da, right? You know how we are so often to do when things get uncomfortable during a hard moment. We try to take the edge off by alleviating the tension and thereby missing the deeper work that could have happened. We had embraced the tension. Grant, I know you know what I'm talking about. Jesus was sturdier than the tension. He was up to something here. He was about to reveal them to them the astonishing brilliance of God's redemptive plan. He was going to draw them out by slowly pulling back the curtain so that when it finally landed, it went all the way down. He didn't want them to simply be stunned by a spectacle. He wanted them to perceive the entire Andromeda galaxy of the gospel stretching over the entirety of the scriptures. So let's continue now in verses 17 through 19. And Jesus said to them, I love this. So what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And Jesus said, What things? <laughs> I love that Jesus said that. Our Lord is no stoic. The risen Christ can play coy. That's what he's doing here. They're distraught over his death, which is the talk of town. Jesus is walking beside them. He acts like there's no idea what's going on. What things? That's hilarious. Don't be too pious to miss that. <laughs> So in exasperation, they informed this seemingly oblivious man, continuing on, back half of verse 19, picking up, they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But him, they did not see. So they heard about the empty tomb, the greatest news, but in fear and unbelief, they're headed in the opposite direction right now. Oh, how often has God made himself so clear to us? How often has his goodness been so undeniable to us? How often has his fingerprints covered our lives and how quick we can forget and in fear and unbelief turn our backs on the empty tomb. I submit we ought not be too hard to these Emmaus travelers because tomorrow morning you might be tempted to live like the resurrection never happened. May God grant us faith. And now it's Jesus' turn to respond. No more playing coy. Or maybe a little bit. So here, on this dusty road outside of Jerusalem, what began as a fear-stricken retreat culminated in the most incredible Bible study that has ever existed in the world. Jesus Christ himself, showing how the entirety of the scriptures from creation to Malachi at that point, the Old Testament is their scriptures, were all about him, kids, Always remember that the Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus Christ. There's lots of rules, and we must obey them as well. God is serious about obedience. But they're ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ. The scriptures are an ever-increasing crescendo of God's covenantal faithfulness to a rebellious people. That's what they are. They're an ever-increasing crescendo of God's covenant faithfulness to a rebellious people each prophet and each promise adding to the symphony of a coming Savior, a crescendo that culminated at the cross with a pause for three days, and then a peek at the bodily resurrection of the crucified Son of God. It was all foreshadowing Christ. And don't you wonder where specifically he took them in the scriptures? I would just love to have Jesus outline there. Perhaps he took them to the Exodus Passover, where the blood of a spotless lamb had to be painted on crossbeams of wood, so that an angel of death would pass over the people of God. Or perhaps he took them to Jonah, where a man was buried beneath the sea for three days, so that a whole nation could be saved. Or perhaps he took them back 700 years to the prophet Isaiah, where Isaiah spoke of a son who was to be born of a virgin who would establish a kingdom of peace that would quest out for eternity. Or perhaps he took him to the prophet Daniel, who spoke of a strange vision, where he saw one who looked like a man being presented to God and given kingly dominion over all the nations. Or perhaps he took him to Zephaniah, where God promised to Israel who was mourning that a king would come and take away their judgments and clear away their enemies, and who would rejoice over them with loud singing and quiet them by his love. Or perhaps he took them all the way back to Eden, where the Lord promised that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent with a bruised heel. Think nail on the cross. I'm sure he took him there and a hundred other places, as the light of the resurrection now worked backwards, where all the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament put on flesh and bone and had a voice and a smile now. Can you even imagine this moment on this holy road? It's worth trying, is it not? Interestingly, even here their eyes aren't fully opened yet. The dawn is just slowly rising. And it's not until dinner that night that the veil is completely removed. We'll see this a bit later in Luke 24, skip down to 30 30 through 32. It says, When Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they saw. They they recognized him. And he vanished from their sights. And then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road. While he unfolded the scriptures for us. There is no doubt that this is one of the greatest conversations that has ever happened in the history of the world. And Luke, a trusted, careful, careful, brilliant historian, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, captures our attention as the resurrection starts to ripple out now to the surrounding regions. Now, in the remainder of our time, I want us to go back and consider something that Jesus said to them when he was confronting their slowness of heart to believe In verse 26, he says something that would be easy to read over too quickly, but it is jammed with significance for us. It is the most important question that we answer well. Jesus said, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, namely the cross, and then enter into his glory, namely his kingly reign? He acts as if they should have known why this was necessary. How would you answer that question? Why was it necessary that Christ suffer and enter into his glory? There is no other question that is as important for a human being to answer well. There is no other question that, depending on how you answer this, changes everything, both Monday morning, practically, and for eternity. And in the time remaining, I want to offer two biblical answers, though there are a hundred more, as to why it was absolutely necessary for Christ to suffer and enter into his glory. The first one concerns our eternity. The second one concerns Monday morning. First, why was it necessary? To ransom a people for God. to ransom a people for God. In this room, we all have different stories. We come from different places. We have different socioeconomic backgrounds, but we have one thing in common. It is the great leveler of humanity. You were born in Adam, which means you were born in sin. And the wages, the wages of sin is death. That's what sin earns us is death. We were all born with a price on our heads. And if we we were to be saved, it would not be through becoming a little better or going to church or by attending the right school. It would not be through anything that we could do because we were totally powerless. Our salvation was a ransom situation. We would need someone strong enough and righteous enough and rich enough to pay our sin debt against a holy God. There is only one man who can pay a debt against God. God become a man. This is the incarnation. God in flesh. And this is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The wages of sin is death. And on the cross, Christ took on all our sin and he paid the wage, the wrath of God for the sins of the church. And this is why Jesus Christ cried, it is finished on the cross. That is receipt language. That means paid in full, totally atoned for. You might say, ransom sounds a little dramatic, doesn't it? To which I reply, you better believe it's dramatic. And when the heavenly host finally understood what Christ had accomplished, They sang a dramatic song about the ransomed redeemed of God, Revelation 5-9. They sang a new song when they saw what Christ had accomplished. They sang a new song, and it went like this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and every language and people and nation. Christian, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer and enter into his glory? First, so you and I and all who believe upon the Son could be ransomed. Don't let this be common, this is astonishing. And we will spend the rest of eternity praising God with a better song now, knowing more of his glorious grace than we ever could have otherwise. Praise be to God. And the second, in conclusion, on a more practical, on-the-ground way. Why was it necessary? First, to ransom a people for God. Two, to rescue us from the fear of death. To rescue us from the fear of death. As I said in the first point, we are different in many ways. But in some ways, we are exactly the same. We were born sinful through Adam. And because of that, we all have to face the reality that we will die. For every human ever, there has been a fear that must be faced. You will die. And as Americans, we hate this reality. We avoid it at all costs. We are terrified of our mortality. You only need to look at the response over the past year to see how fear can sweep over the land. It's scary. But I have such good news. Jesus Christ does not want you to be afraid of death. He wants you to be gloriously, stunningly, free from the fear of death, which is the fountain of all other fears. Jesus had this specifically in mind when he went to the cross. Your fear of death. You might respond, how do you know that Jesus had that in mind? He told us. The scriptures are really helpful for getting into the mind of God. Hebrews two fourteen through 15. This is an amazing passage. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, namely he took on flesh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why do we not need to fear death? Because Jesus put on flesh and entered into this fallen, death-drenched world. And he destroyed the devil's temporary, limited reign. And he put death to death by suffering and dying on the cross and then rising and reversing the curse. Jesus wants you to be so free from that specter that awaits. Why? Because you will never die as a Christian. You'll die, but you won't die. I think I'm speaking funny. Jesus says this exactly to Lazarus's sister. Check this out. It's really there, I'm telling you. John 11:25. 25. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is such gospel. Though you die, you don't die. Though we die, we shall live. Our hope is a living hope. Eternal life is not some place we hopefully fly away to someday. Eternal life is happening right now. It's already begun for those who are in Christ Though the outer body is wasting way, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And when you do depart from the body, you're with the Lord for a season. And then resurrection comes. To glorified, real, physical bodies on a new, glorified, real earth. Remember, the Jesus walking on Emmaus was the first fruits of the resurrected humanity. And he walked, and he talked, and he joked, and he ate, and he fellowshiped. And I'm sure he smiled. Because he had a good reason to smile. He knew all that he had accomplished. And he knew it was about to break over these Emmaus travelers. Their world was about to be upended again, but in the best possible way, as they began to awaken to the new morning star of a new day, a new reality, one where resurrection has the final word. Yes, it was certainly necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God. We thank you that in your grace you inspired men to write these words down so that we could peer into the very heart of our God. Yes, the creation proclaims your praises, but it doesn't tell us how to be saved. Your word does. And so we thank you for it. We do not presume upon it. We know that there are many Christians right now that would marvel at what we're doing, worshiping in broad daylight amazing. I pray, Lord, for the saints here, that through your Holy Spirit, you would confirm the reality of the resurrection more today than perhaps they've believed in a long time, for our joy, for the good of Goodlitzville, and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.